um, welcome guys. I'm very excited to have you guys here. Um, my hope today is to have a very open and honest conversation about ESG. Um, as I mentioned to all three of you when we were engaging in talks to have this conversation, I have a lot of questions. And I think you guys will be the perfect people to answer some of those questions. Uh, but first, let's start with a round of introductions. Uh, Bob, we can start with you. So I'm Bob Willard. I'm a sole proprietor, a certified B Corp. Um, I founded Sustainability Advantage about 22 years ago. And um, I write books. I do talks. I create resources, all of them free and open source for people that are trying to engage businesses more proactively in environmental and social issues. Um, but mostly I do talks. I, I did a little over 80 talks last year. I'll probably do about the same number this year to uh, college, university, conference, uh, boards, uh, quite a variety of, of different organizations. So mostly what I try to do is uh, help businesses see that it's in their self-interest to be more careful about their environmental and social impacts, to be more positive with those. Uh, so a lot of my work is the business case for sustainability. How do you cost justify doing more on these things than you're already doing? Um, and as a father and a grandfather, this is uh, important to me because <laughs> uh, I'm very uneasy about where the world is going. And I think business has a role to play in the solutions. Perfect. Um, we'll have a lot to discuss there because those are a lot of talks, 80 a year. Eric. Hi, I'm Eric Wetlawfer. Uh, I'm a managing partner at Twin River Capital. It's an impact investment firm. And our mission is to deliver on both financial and social and environmental impacts. Those are the two streams that evoke the name Twin River Capital. Uh, I'm also a, a, a director of the TMX, which is Canada's Stock and Derivatives Exchange, and IMCO, which is a large pension plan here in, in Ontario. Uh, and really, my career is about investing and advising and, and, and helping companies, engaging with companies and leading companies to to achieve their goals and hopefully increasingly in a more sustainable manner through understanding their social and environmental footprint, through measuring the impacts of their outputs, uh, their products or services, but their other outputs as well. Perfect. And Derek? Yeah, my name is Dirk Matten. I'm the Hewlett-Packard Chair in Corporate Social Responsibility at the Schulich School of Business at York University. I've been in Canada for 15 years. I'm originally from Germany, as my ineradicable accent gives away. <laughs> and I have been interested in the role and the interface of uh, business and society actually from uh, my uh, high school years. Because I grew up in an area in Germany which was old industrial, think Hamilton in uh, Canada, old industrial heartland which declined due to business decisions but also got revived due to business decisions. So this really made me curious and I had some time in business but mm. for the last 25 years have been an academic and this... Uh, the rise of this interest in these questions is really fascinating, and so I'm happy to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, the, the questions and interests are very fascinating. Um, 
I mean, I'm an example of that, and that's why I wanted to have you guys here. It, it's a very fascinating topic, and there is a lot to discuss. But I always like to start off these conversations with definitions so that everyone is on the same page. So today's topic is ESG. Um, what does that mean? Um, what actually is ESG? I feel that there's people have different perspectives, but um, I would like to get your perspective so that everyone knows where you stand and what we're going to discuss. We can start with you again, Bob, if you like. Sure. I think originally ESG was a synonym for sustainability. So it's talking about the, uh, the impacts of an organization on society and on the environment. So it's what are sometimes called the, the inside-out impacts, the impacts of the company on the, so the society in which it is immersed and the environment. Um, lately, it's been used in a different context. It's more about the impacts of society and the environment on the company. So when we talk about ESG, it's very often used as an adjective for risks. So ESG risks to the company, to the finances of the company, because of um, environmental forces such as climate change. So it's become more of a, an adjective than a noun. It's become an adjective for risks that could do damage to an organization if it's not ready for them. Um, and it's becoming more and more narrowly focused on climate change. It's not, it's not bad, it's just different. So we need to con be concerned about both, both the outside-in impacts as well as the inside-out impacts uh, of an organization. So it's really what is sometimes called double materiality, both of them. Do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, and I'm in full agreement with Bob. That, uh, I think that's a great explanation. Uh, I'd only add that different stakeholders have different emphasis on, on how, they, how they do it. If you're an investor, you're trying to understand um, how much progress maybe a company has made along these non-financial factors and what kind of uh, financial uh, implications that has for the company, whether it's risks or growth opportunities. If you're a customer of a company, you want to understand their products and how much damage or how much help their products are doing in, in the world. Um, if you're an employee, you might really care, you know, particularly the younger people, I would say. Um, more likely, the younger generations are looking at companies as, as potential employers or where they do already work and to try to understand whether these companies that are aligned with their values. So... It's different perspectives on ESG, depending on sort of where you're interacting with the company. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think this ESG uh, discourse, which has em emerged in the last, I would say, three, five years, but it's, a, it's the latest label of the field, is very fascinating in the sense that um, if you are a professional in this area, and also as someone who has studied it a little bit for the last 30 years, it is really a miracle that you have this area where business interacts with society and you get all these new labels. It started maybe in the 1990s, certainly in the US, with business ethics. Then it was corporate citizenship. My chair, endowed by Hewlett-Packard, is corporate social responsibility, which was a big thing. 
Then sustainability came up and that really uh, shapes still a lot what we do is at Schulig recently set up an area called sustainability and now it's ESG and sometimes certainly in in my part of the world among academics but also practitioners who do this they say what is this all these labels all this alphabet soup what does it really mean and I think Eric made the point and that's really the point I want to pick up Business role in society is defined by, as you said, stakeholders, by people who interact with business and have demands towards business. And that makes the language change. And in that sense, it is a, the latest dynamic. And if you look at ESG, what I find very interesting is that if you look to older labels, there was always a conceptual idea behind it. You know, sustainability, you know, there's, 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 you know, there are layers. Now we are in a sort of ideal postmodern world where it's environmental, social, governance, period. Three almost randomly collected things, but and this is the, the final point I would like to make, it marks something which made me very, very happy and uh, hopeful about bringing the topic further because I think ESG, as in its inception through the PRI, reflects that investors are taking these questions more seriously. And we can discuss, of course, how serious, but... That's the big step ahead, and that's why I like ESG. Absolutely, and it's really interesting. I've heard the word sustainability a couple of times during those explanations. So I, under I understand that initially there was more of a focus on sustainability, and then, as Dirk, you mentioned, it became environmental social governance. So what happened to the sustainability part? Um, I've learned that you know there's a bit of a contention with ESG and sustainability and some differences. But, uh, can you tell me a bit more about that? I'll take a crack at it. Uh, sustainability normally is talking about three different dimensions of, of the impacts of an organization, the social, the economic, and the environmental. So ESG takes the economic part out and puts governance in there. Environment and social impacts were always part of it. So sustainability was just an umbrella term for the way in which the organization was doing environmentally, socially, and economically. The use of G was deliberate when that term was created um, to try to attract the uh, investment community more into this subject. The investment community, understandably, is very concerned about how a company is run before they put their money into the company. They want to understand how it is being governed, how it is being managed, how it is being run by competent people with appropriate policies and so on. So um, the G was the hook to get the investors to start thinking about this a little bit more than they already had. The E and the S was going to follow along behind. In fact, when the term was created, it was at first going to be G-E-S to have the G first. And then the people that created the term decided that, hmm, you better put G at the end because they'll never get to the E and the S if it's at the front. So <laughs> it became ESG. Um, and it was actually very good at getting the investment community, the finance community engaged 
in this topic more than I had before because part of good governance is, is paying attention to the environmental and social impacts of the organization as well as, of course, uh, how well it's doing on the financial part. So um, ESG has now been taken over almost by the finance and, and um, investment community and that's not bad or, or good, it's just the way it's happened. But there are almost holy wars between people who uh, feel very, very strongly about the term sustainability and what it has underneath that umbrella term and what ESG has evolved into being. So we, we get very polarized conversations about this stuff. Uh, I think the way we started off on this conversation saying that they're, they're basically synonyms but different lenses from different stakeholders is still appropriate. Absolutely. Uh, do you, uh, Eric, Dirk, do you guys have thoughts on ESG versus sustainability? Sure. I mean, I think what what we're trying to get to here is, as and I'll speak for the investment community. That's my background. Um, when I came up through the business, analysts and portfolio managers very focused on the short term, and so a lot of this is about time horizon. Um, you don't get a quarterly report and immediately jump into well, how much did they spend on R and D on long term, you know, capital projects this quarter. You look at how sales were relative to last quarter, try to make trends and try to understand whether a company's doing better than expectations or worse than expectations. And the idea of sustainability is, well, if you're really an investor and not a trader and you want to own these companies for the long term, what are the critical things for a company to pay attention to so that it is around and successful and beating its competition and a, and a, and a great investment to own? And so that's kind of the idea of sustainability. But yeah, without a focus more on the E and the S side, um, the financials can naturally dominate because they're very easily countable. It's what people are used to counting and measuring and tracking and setting goals for, whereas people don't have as much experience and are not as comfortable tracking a company's environmental and social footprint and setting goals for that and, and understanding the impact. And, and management teams and investor relations groups are not very good at at articulating those either. So we're getting better over time, but it is a, it is a struggle because we were trained on other things. That um, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, just to add to this discussion, maybe I can share a little anecdote. Uh, 15 years ago, I was working in London, England, and uh, was director of a program which was called Management and Sustainability. So in the first year, I had this a cohort of 12 students from a certain country, uh, not the UK, and uh, I was puzzled why they were in the room because they were so not interested. <laughs> and by week three, I had a sit-down with them and it turned out that they were recruited in their country uh, by someone who said, this is about making business sustainably, profitable, long-term, and so they ended up in this uh, program, uh, which was about environmental sustainability, about ethics and all these uh, uh, business responsibility-related issues. And of course, they had no idea. And I think that's part of the reason why sustainability became so popular, right? That uh, sustain 
who could be against sustainability, right? <laughs> it's a good thing. And in that sense, um, we have always seen that bu business tends to amoralize ethical issues, climate change, uh, labor conditions in the third world, and so on. And a lot of these labels do exactly that. And I think, I think sustainability had a big role to play there. And it was the job of Bob and others to say sustainability actually means more than this. What we are seeing now with ESG is another way to amoralize the whole thing. It's about environment. Yeah, we know it by now. We Climate change, you know, the palpable impact of it. Social, we see that this is important and of course governance and that's I think where the investor community maybe comes in and in that sense putting it on the last uh, uh, order in some ways uh, is uh, makes sense to not forget what it actually is about but that's really how it works. So the way I look at it is that the language at the end of the day is a way to integrate and um, uh, interest a community in these issues, whether it's ethics, sustainability, corporate health, social responsibility, citizenship. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The important thing is that we have an area where business is seeing its responsibilities for these broader environmental, social, and ethical issue. Right. That's, that's really interesting. And what I heard a few times there is that it, it see, the lens has changed from what is best for the world, i.e. climate change, uh, in terms of its impact on people to its impact on the corporation and the firm, um, which makes sense if you do look at it from a corporate lens, your, obviously your concern is gonna be what is this going to do to our firm and how do we mitigate it? But as we move on and people become more and more aware of these issues, um, they, they do wanna create a positive impact. So for instance, in the investment community, investors are very focused on investing in products that meet their ideals, um, that they feel will actually do some good in the world. And so we have all these funds out there with uh, you know, high uh, ratings and uh, you know, this is a, a super ESG friendly fund, this one is not, this stock has a high ESG rating, this one doesn't. And I, I personally have found the rating system to be a bit confusing where I, I do question why certain firms have the ratings that they do and other firms don't. Uh, so I'm hoping you guys can shed a bit of light on ESG scoring. Like what is happening <laughs> and why, you know, is, uh, for instance, an oil company, a gas company, have a high ESG rating? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a bit of that. I think the requirement that these uh, services have in front of them is to rate every public company. So when you're rating thousands of companies, Almost by definition, you can't look through the, uh, the statistics of what's really going on underneath, and that's the job of the investor to do that. Um, we see a corollary exactly from what happened with Moody's and S&P in the financial crisis, right? They wanted to rate every single debt security in the world, 
And they rated a bunch of them AAA, and investors who would simply follow the rating uh, might, uh, might find themselves in deep trouble, as these things were clearly not quality investments. So here you have the same kind of situation, where these rating services want to rate every company in the world. So they look at a lot of different factors, but you get an A or a B, a yes or a no, a binary rating if you have a committee on this, if you have a policy on that. What the company actually does with that policy, they may not disclose. It may be tough to really understand, right? So it's the job of the investor to look through these ratings because you're, there are a lot of companies that on one service, they're rated highly as a good ESG you know, uh, candidate and, and by another rating service that's looking really at the same things with a poor rating or a below average rating. And you don't get, as an investor necessarily, any, tr any transparency as to what the weight of the different you know, uh, characters, characteristics are to, to uh, you know, to when you, when you aggregate them up to, to a final score, you don't, you don't get that kind of transparency. It's a black box. So I think, you know, I think the more thoughtful people are, are getting beyond the ratings and they're looking at the impacts of these companies. You know, that's what we, that's what I'm doing at, at Twin River is trying to understand what, what are the positive impacts of the, of the products and the services when they're released out into the wild you know, what difference are these companies actually making? Is it an education company? Is it a clean tech company? Is it a healthcare company that's products and services are really doing great, great work? And you can measure that. And you can measure the actual difference they're making, sort of get to the data, move beyond the scores, get underneath the scores and the ratings <clears throat> to the actual metrics themselves, the raw data. Right. Um, the reason... I asked that question and why I've been thinking about this for the past little while is because of Elon Musk. He's a, a very active Twitter user and, uh, you know, you'll find headlines from him pretty much every other week talking about this. Um, and he was upset with the rating that Tesla received. Um, and that did make me pause and question, you know, Tesla is considered to be one of, you know, a very green company. They've pretty much revolutionized the way um, we use transportation. And so I would expect a company like Tesla to be to have a higher rating for Elon to be happier with that. But he's saying that he's his firm is being treated unfairly. Um, and so is there truth to that? Like, what do you feel is happening in that situation? I understand uh, your point, and it makes complete sense that these agencies have you know thousands of companies worldwide. Everyone needs an ESG rating because ESG is very popular. Everyone wants to know what the rating is. Um, and so there is a sense of ju there's just too much to do, uh, too little resources. Um, but when you have like large companies that really stand out um, and when they feel they're not being treated fairly, I, I do wonder what might be happening over there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a big company and no company is perfect. And there's a lot of pros and cons with every company. There's You have to net it out to what difference is that company making in the world and what's important to you. Um, if you are doing wonderful things in the environment, but at a great human cost, and uh, or 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 non-direct environmental cost, then what's the net to you as the investor? You have to figure that out and do the work, right? So he may be upset with his single rating on on his company. I would argue that any single rating on any company is something that people should be upset by, because it can't capture. Uh, really the totality of what's going on in a large complex company. So, you know, he, he uh, the, the company is, is doing a fantastic job at moving forward, you know, the electrification of transportation. But 
the governance is questionable, um, and other parts of their of their company is questionable. And it's up to you, the consumer, to educate yourselves on those nets and what's really important to you, and then and make your decision uh, in that way, and communicate that if you have clients, if you're investing for other people, it's not your money; it's a sacred trust, and you have to communicate, and you have to be accountable for those decisions to your to your clients, who are your you know who are ultimately the the the, uh, the reason that you're in you're do, you're managing money for them. Mm. I mean, to just pick this up, Eric, yeah. um, the interesting debate I find about, for instance, electric car is that nobody looks at the life cycle environmental impacts of producing battery, lithium mining, all that kind of stuff. That is not talked about. And that just, I, I, I say this not as, a, as, a, as, as an epiphany, but reflecting again that all these questions companies face come from society with the level of information we have, with the level of attention we pay to uh, certain things at a certain time. And that makes, of course, all these rankings and ratings very, very subjective. You know, a number of my graduates here work for Sustainalytics in, in Toronto and you know, they can tell you stories about the complexity of uh, grasping and reflecting these things because ultimately these ratings reflect investor preferences. And that's a very old debate. We had that in the early 1990s when the, uh, the FTSE for good in London, for the London Stock Exchange, and the Dow Jones Sustainability Index were set up. And they had just different philosophical approaches. The FTSE said some companies are never going to be on our index. Nuclear power was a big thing and other industries. Whereas the Dow Jones said, no, no, life is life. And there are companies who do fossil fuels and who do all sorts of other things, which not all of us may agree are good. But what we do is we do a best in class. And so they have for every industry the best performers. Now these are these are fundamental philosophical uh, differences, and uh, I say philosophical not as a fancy term, but uh, to describe that people have different expectations and aspirations, and that also translates to investors. And as long as we are uh, so diverse as humans. Rankings and ratings will be diverse too. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, Eric, I I think it's very interesting that you said investors have to do the research themselves and kind of dive into it. And I feel that's very fair because, again, relying on one number that's assigned to a firm and you don't know the exact metrics or how they came up with that number while it may be convenient, it's probably not the best if you do genuinely you know, want your investments to make a positive impact on the world. Um, now, I do wonder, how should advisors look at this? So, you know, my background is uh, in um, financial management, obviously. I was an associate with an advisor where we invested uh, assets for our advisors. We had our portfolios um, and, you know, I've noticed that in the last couple of years before I left, there was a shift where uh, investors were increasingly coming and asking questions about ESG. Um, they, you know, or they would share things that they were passionate about and they wanted 
or sorry, um, shares that they were pa of companies that they were passionate about, and really ideas um, and causes that they wanted to be involved in. Um, one example is clean water project, right? And so they would come to us and be like, okay, how do I make a positive impact in this area? What should I invest in? What shares should I buy? So I do wonder what resources would you guys, resources or even approaches would you invest to advisors who have to create these portfolios, who have investors coming to them for this information? Because um, as we know, advisors have a lot on their plate. Unfortunately, not always um, the right amount of resources. And so are there like any resources that you can point to? I mean, there are fund rating services. Morningstar is a great example. Um, and they recently took the took the uh, fairly aggressive ste step step of disqualifying something like thirty percent of their of the funds that had been labeled as sustainable as 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 actually not qualifying qualifying for that designation. So the 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 most important thing for an advisor to do is is get beneath the label. If a company has labeled their fund as sustainable or ESG or clean tech, go at least try to get beneath that label, look at what's in the portfolio, what are the top holdings of the portfolio, or look at some more independent evaluation service to try to understand um, whether you can confirm what the company is saying about how it manages the money is actually coming through in the portfolio's holdings. Um, because they don't always align, and there are very high-profile examples of uh, you know, a big global bank in Germany and another big global bank in uh, New York that have actually been uh, been taken to task by regulators for not actually doing what they say they do. Uh, so, I mean, the fact is we're on a journey here, and a lot of these labels and a lot of these practices are evolving and changing, but this kind of conversation and discourse is exactly what is needed to improve the level of the game. We, I mean, we're still debating regular financial accounting after over 100 years of it, <laughs> and so to expect ESG measurements and ESG scoring and, and management of these portfolios to be perfect after, you know, just a decade or two, uh, I think is, uh, is, is, is a little bit aggressive, but a lot of attention is being paid, and, and I think you're going to see great improvement, and the advisors are going to have a lot more help five and ten years from now in understanding what really is authentically ESG than they do today. The rating game is a really challenging game. I mean, people want a number, but they also want the detail behind the number. And the transparency of all of that detail is always a challenge for the rater because that, in some cases, uh, involves some proprietary approaches that they're using. So uh, I think it's, as Eric was saying, it's important to understand what's behind the number and the criteria that we're looked at. So um, corporate nights, for example, uh, rates and ranks the 100 largest publicly traded companies on the planet as to how sustainable they are. And they every year put out a, a global 100 list. What's really impressive is that you see all the detail behind that. They started off with about 14 criteria. They're up to 21 now and they cover all the bases, environmental, social, governance. Uh, and you can see the way in which these companies scored on each of them. Uh, so you've got the detail behind it. So as you say, if you want to know how they're doing on water, you can see how they're doing on that particular indicator, that particular criteria, that, that KPI. 
And that's where the, the ratings are, are really helpful. You get an overall number, but you can see the detail behind it. If you can't see the detail behind it, it's, it's kind of useless. So Sustainalytics goes through the same kind of challenge of coming up with a single rating, but also being as transparent as possible about all of the, the data behind it. And um, I, I think that the thirst for scores, the, the, the thirst for ranking and so on, uh, sometimes gets us into uh, unfortunate situations where we're just looking at one thing. So when you mentioned Tesla before, their product may be pretty sustainable other than uh, life cycle implications of the batteries and so on. Um, but the company, as a company, how is that being run, governed? How is it being governed? How do they treat their employees? How do they treat their communities and so on? So is, if that's important to you as an investor, you want to know that information. So having the backup behind the ranking, I think, is more important than the ranking. Absolutely. And I think there has been a shift towards that um, because, as we've been discussing, people are no longer just accepting that number. Well, the number is very convenient and it's easy and everybody wants it, so they have an idea of at least where to start or, uh, you know, a general guidance of, okay, this is this company is in the right area, this one is not based on ranking. Um, there definitely is more of a move towards research, but I think the issue is where do I start? How do I, what resources are available for me to go and start evaluating these firms? Um, and that can be a difficult process depending on the information out there, but also because there's so much information that you don't know where to start. Um, but I, I, yes, Dirk. I think Eric has made the point. It's a young field. Let's give it some time. And I see it from uh, my end of uh, the, um, the, the trade. We just got an endowment by a large Canadian bank uh, for a chair in sustainable finance. That's just starting. There is a guy coming in who can contribute to develop these things. It's a new thing. And by the way, other rankings. Think of the uh, tri uh, AAA ratings of all these bonds that led to the financial crisis in 2008, right? Ratings and rankings are not perfect, right? And this is a very new area. And yes, we need to develop the expertise and uh, the criteria and make them robust and make them maybe even stronger. But I think it's an exciting journey that has started. Let's not forget this. This, this wasn't a conversation to be had 10 years ago. And so I look at it rather as some uh, blossoming flower that needs to be watered, protected, and uh, you know fertilized rather than look at the limits and, of course, challenges that are still around, yes. But on some issues, we don't have that much runway. I mean, we don't have the luxury of taking forever to figure this out and be really rigorous about it. So I kind of applaud the efforts by the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC in the US and the CSA in Canada, uh, to get stock exchanges to require listed companies to be uh, more open about how they're doing on critical issues like climate change. So the effort by the SEC to require companies as part of their Form 10K or whatever uh, to uh, disclose 
how they're doing on the task force for climate-related financial disclosures factors, I think is really, really good. While we figure out all of this other stuff, at least give the investors enough information on critical issues that they can make a more um, balanced judgment as to whether they want to put their money into those companies or support them. It's always a pleasure to be on a panel with Bob. <laughs> I've been there a couple of uh, times over the last 50 years because uh, I would like to take up this point. I'm glad that I don't have to make it as the crazy academic, but if we really question the whole ranking game and say this isn't quite doing the job or there, you know, a lot of greenwashing and a lot of things going on which are actually counterproductive in a really bad way. I mean, we can, we can say that. I think the real step we have to make here is question the current model of uh, corporate ownership. And I think we see a lot of progress towards uh, ESG. Yeah? We see a lot of progress to these with regard to these goals when we change the idea of ownership, not market governs, And that's where these rankings comes in. And that's their value, that they add this new dimension to our established way of uh, corporate ownership through markets. But if we look at uh, new ideas, if we look at social entrepreneurship, if we look at B Corps, we see very different ideas of ownership, which is not based on basically... Uh, gambling on the stock market. Currently, corporate ownership is like a casino, basically. Nobody owns. We only invest. And if you think of day trading and all these things, the, the idea, and this is a point uh, Paul Polman, Dominic Barton, other people who have thought about this, Mark Weisman here in, from Canada has written about it in Harvard Business Review, that we need to change to a model where ownership really means that you identify and you stay with the company and you instill certain goals, ESG-related goals, into the way this is managed and stay in there for the long term. So in that sense, uh, Bob, I, I, I pick up your point and say maybe we need to broaden the discussion. If we really want to get towards ESG, we have to also question current models of ownership. Yeah, I mean, there are some very innovative uh, employee ownership uh, initiatives that are underway yes, to yes. provide uh, better and more easy access to capital for uh, Uh, ownership transitions from founders to their employees, for example. And it's, you can't do that at a, a huge company, a huge listed company, but for uh, what used to be much smaller companies, now with maybe more medium-sized companies, you know, for the employees to take a bigger role in the ownership and, and the governance of their mm -hmm. firm going forward. You know, there are some great innovations in that area as well. So we're coming at this from a lot of different areas, and it is a journey, but I, th I think your point, Dirk, is fantastic, which is that You know, who owns the company, what's their motivation, what's their commitment and attachment to the company has a huge, huge role to play in how quickly we move and, how, and, and in the quality of the work. No, it's really interesting. Yes, Dirk. Jeez. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say, as you guys were speaking about ownership, it actually made me think about my own firm. Um, so at CGI, one of the things that I noticed um, was that we called our employees members, not employees. And there was from day one, you know, a push to um, participate in the share purchase plan. And obviously there's an incentive to do so because we wanted to make an impact and to have our employees voices heard by being actual owners. And it is longer term than day trading, uh, which Dirk brought up. Um, and so I, I think that while you, I agree with you, Eric, that you know, for a company even such as CGI, because we are a global, huge, you know, um, global 500 company, it is difficult to do that. But even those types of small changes um, and these types of encouragements can happen at large firms where you know employees do have a more of a stake uh, in the firm and you know do feel like owners and do believe that the steps and actions that they're taking uh, do have an impact on where they work. Um, I feel that is really powerful. Mm. I'll give you I'll give you a quick one. Which yeah. I, I I was I was uh, the beneficiary of this practice, but in trying to convince other companies to do it, I've had zero success. <laughs> and that is to change the annual bonus to a quarterly payment, so that you don't have this. Um, you know, sort of a white knuckle period before the end of the year where you're worried about how you're going to get rated and you're worried about how big your bonus is going to be. Every 90 days, you get a, a payment of your bonus and you feel like it's more of a dividend check. You feel like more of an owner of the company and you're participating mm -hmm. in the economics and you're continuously being rated. I've never been able to convince another company <laughs> to do that that I've tried. But when I did receive that as, as, a, as a partner of a company that I worked at many, many years ago, I really felt a little bit different walking into the company every morning. I'd see the name of the company on the wall, and I'd say, hey, listen, I have a, you know, I have a role to play here as, as, a, as, a, as a participant in a different way than just an employee. I like that you bring this uh, idea of employee uh, ownership and governance up because, look, we are sitting in downtown Toronto, yeah, one of the greatest cities in the world for many reasons for me including one that more than half of us are not even born here yeah so put this whole discussion now please also in a global perspective and yes employee ownership employee stake employee representation on the board is something other parts of the world do and going beyond uh, to what we call normally the developing world or the third world, even very derogatory. Um, I had a research project in India and I had to write a book chapter with the chairman, Ratan Tata. Uh, so I spent two weeks there and was interviewing everybody in the senior management team on, it was about community engagement. And I had my little Western professor, smart uh, interview uh, guideline. And after day two, that went into the bin because the conversation topics in this part of the world, what the, the purpose of the firm is, is so different. And, you know, this company is number 66 on the Forbes index. So it's a big major multinational they own major brands and everything yeah it's not it's not a you know it's not a, 
let's say Ben and Jerry's kind of uh, thing. It's a serious company. Two-thirds owned by a foundation which does welfare state provision in India. And if you talk to the senior uh, people there and ask them, what's the purpose of your operation? They say nation-building. Never heard that before. You find that in no Western textbook. But that's the reality of the other 7 billion people in the world. And a lot of what we are talking, you know, starting with rankings and stuff, is about the 2 billion. And that's our world. But, you know, the beauty of Toronto is that we have all these people and these connections to the rest of the world, and certainly in my classroom. And I think we, we, we do well if we think about ownership, governance, role of employees, of community, and other ways to organize business. If we are talking about ESG, to learn from also these parts of the world. Absolutely. And that is something that I've come across is, you know, ESG in developed nations such as ours versus developing nations. And I had some questions for you guys on that as well. Um, you know, there's uh, different uh, groups like, you know, we have the G7, we have the World Economic Forum uh, who get together and really, you know, try to figure out issues that are impacting society. Um, and one of these issues that they've been focusing on for the past couple of years is environmental. Um, ESG is, you know, constantly brought up. There's even a huge ESG forum uh, that happens annually. So I, I do, you know, this is something that I've been trying to understand and I struggle a bit with is how does a developed nation, you know, try to help these other developing nations uh, sort of catch up and also, um, is it is it ethical? Is it okay for you know, let's say Canada, to say that India should do things a certain way, that because we're doing them a certain way here, that they should also have to take up those policies? Like, how do you have those conversations, and how do you create a fair framework for everyone? Yeah, we went through this. Uh, I in a previous life, I worked for IBM Canada. Uh, for 34 years, and um, we did a lot of work on culture in the company. And being an international company, um, there was always this question as to whether or not the culture that we were experiencing in a North American context was appropriate in other jurisdictions, in other, in other countries. And we, we kind of settled down to um, a fundamental set of principles and ethics by which we were going to conduct business, uh, that it didn't matter where you were, those were the ethics, those were the principles. It had to do with corruption and all that kind of stuff. Business practices, human rights. Uh, there were variations, of course, within each country as to emphasis and so on, but um, there were some consistencies. So in terms of business model governance, I think it doesn't matter where you are, good governance is good governance. But it also comes back to purpose purpose of the organization is going to be different in different jurisdictions. Um, and the good news is that there's been a little bit more legitimization of this question of purpose in the corporate world uh, in the last few years. In 2019, uh, the Business Roundtable, which is the 181 
CEOs of the largest corporations in the United States. Largest corporations in the United States. The CEOs said it's time for us to revisit the purpose of the corporation. And everybody knows the purpose of the corporation is to maximize shareholder wealth. Three words. Mantra drilled into an MBA school. And what they were suggesting is maybe it's time that we tuned that a little bit and that we kind of maximized stakeholder well-being. And they went into, the, in, into a little detail as to who those stakeholders are. So they included customers, they included the community, they included their employees, they included their suppliers, they included the environment, and they also included shareholders. So shareholders are in the list, it's not just uh, shareholders. So we're getting into what is called multi-stakeholder purpose. And once you get into that, that affects your governance because if your purpose is to improve their well-being, it makes sense that they be represented on the board. And therefore, if, even if it's not employee-owned, it's, it's appropriate for stakeholders to ensure that the company is fulfilling its purpose if it is trying to improve the well-being of stakeholders. So I, I think that purpose, ownership, um, stakeholders, governance are, is a, a, a very intertwined conversation. And a lot of what we try to have boards do is to make darn sure the company is fulfilling its purpose. That's their number one reason. Purpose drives governance, governance drives everything. So if, we're, if they're gonna do that appropriately and it's a multi-stakeholder purpose, then it makes sense that there'd be better representation on the board of those folks, including employees. So I think as we start to come to grips with this, the legitimization of other voices as to what the company is doing, could be doing, should be doing, uh, is being legitimized wonderfully, and it's long overdue, because maximizing shareholder wealth has got us into one, into a bad situation in the world, and um, I think it's time we change that. Um, with respect to the developing versus the developed, um, you know, carbon dioxide doesn't know boundaries. <laughs> Math and physics don't know countries. Uh, and so if we're going to make progress with respect to global warming, you know, all countries need to be engaged in that conversation. I, I agree with, you know, I think what you were suggesting, which is that it's, it's a little bit presumptuous of the developed countries that have built their economies on the backs of burning uh, fossil fuels to be dictating to the developed the developing countries, you know, that, that, that exactly how they're going to do it. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a seat at the table and an important role to play. We just have to be understanding of what's possible and what's achievable and try to stretch those uh, possibilities and those achievements for all countries to something that really can, you know, save us. Yeah. And, yes, go ahead. Yeah, just picking up, Bob, from your point about the purpose of the corporation, it would be very interesting what uh, you guys think, uh, particularly Eric, uh, as an investment professional. Um, can we really make bigger strides towards what ESG is aspiring to achieve, right? Can we make these bigger strides in the 
current form of corporate law? Isn't the legal setup of the corporation, certainly in North America, but also in other parts of the world, just uh, putting the vehicle on a rail that is never quite going in the direction where we now see it has to go? Question for you. Well, the letters of incorporation of, of, of companies, even if they're incorporated in Delaware, um, permit them to be B Corps, purpose-driven corporations. I mean, B Lab has gone to enormous, I, I'm, I'm a certified B Corp, I'm on the B Corp Standards Advisory Council, so I'm, I'm pretty close to this. Uh, and there's always been a myth that, um, that you're not allowed to pay attention to other shareholder stakeholders rather than just shareholders, that that you're not allowed to as a corporation, and which is not true. Um, and there are um, lots of opportunities for organizations, corporations, to be incorporated in jurisdictions in a way that uh, definitely uh, enables them to pay more attention to all stakeholders rather than just shareholders. In Canada, there was never a problem. Uh, in the U.S., in many states, there was, um, and many of those have now adopted a, uh, an opportunity for companies to be uh, B Corps, which means that they are intended and required to pay attention to all stakeholders. So I don't think there's a legal hurdle that we have to overcome anymore. We just have to make the decision and have the courage to make that decision that that's who you are as a company. And I think that it's it's possible that if you're paying attention to other stakeholders, that it in some ways is in service to the shareholder, because ultimately they own the company, <laughs> and so if the company is measured only by its quarterly earnings, the value of the company, um, then it's a little bit difficult, more difficult to to um, to come to that conclusion. But if you if you think a company is also valued by it, brand and by its um, contributions to uh, the planet and society, and that holistically, the value of the company is something that is, is you have a bit of more of an open mind and a bit of a, a bigger heart for, um, then you can see that so many of these other activities are actually in, in service of the shareholder as well. But when you're renting the stock for 42 days because you think it's going <laughs> to go up more than other stocks, then, yeah, sure, it's only natural that all you're going to care about is the financials. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with you. Measuring a company just on quarterly earnings, for instance, that doesn't seem very sustainable because at some point you're not going to get that growth every quarter that you're hoping for. And so having a more comprehensive valuation of the firm is definitely the right way to go. Um, and so I... Um, to Eric, one of the points you made earlier about developing and uh, developed nations, I, I do agree with you that, of course, carbon doesn't have borders. It goes all over, and we've seen some of the horrific you know, hurricanes um, in recent history. But um, I guess my, you know, what I wonder about is how can we help? Um, obviously, getting some of these frameworks together is one thing, but it because we are developed and you know as you mentioned we did do it through fossil fuels um how do we help these other countries not rely on those same sources you know because two wrongs don't make a right 
like uh, we went the way we did because there was just no information available at that time, right? And we used what we had. Um, but now we know better. We are a bit more enlightened in that area. Um, so how do we sort of help these other nations um, reach the point where they don't need to rely on it anymore, where it is sustainable? Um, and, you know, there, uh, I, I suppose I just, my hope is always for broad global cooperation um, where everyone, you know, does the right thing for our planet because we do share it. Um, and as you mentioned, there, there's no borders on that, right? Um, and we're all international, as, and as Dirk has mentioned before, you know, it, Toronto's a good example where we're all here, but most of us are from different places. So it is possible for everyone to get along and be together, but, you know, how do we do that on a global scale um, while helping some of these nations? Yeah, I mean, my, my view is it's a bottom-up thing more than a top-down thing. So, you know, yes, carbon doesn't have, uh, you know, a, a geographical constraint, but neither does capital or talent or technology. So, you know, my experience is that, for example, at the Canada Pension Plan, where I used to run public markets, you know, we we invested in in solar projects in India. Uh, so we we brought more capital to solutions. And if if you know, education is a global uh, market, and, and if people can move to those areas where they can have a, a, a more of an impactful career, uh, and many people are are going returning to where they grew up from being educated in other parts of the world to work on some of these problems. So it's talent, it's capital, it's technology that hopefully, you know, from the bottom up, can help to solve a lot of these problems. And I, and I think that that probably, you know, I'm, I'm more of a bottom up person. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, it's not that I don't believe in the top down work that places like the WEF and, you know, the COP and all those, all those they, they, they serve as important uh, symbols and guideposts for where, where people are supposed to go and what people are supposed to think about. But it is the work on the ground that's going to make the real difference, and I think that that through through some of these those, some of these investments and and new companies and and feeding feeding the the real solutions to the problems on the ground that that you know differences collectively cumulatively get made over time. Absolutely, and you are the impact investing person, so you would know this best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um, you know what one of the words you said there that I find very powerful, and I think can solve many problems is knowledge, right? Um, when you share, knowledge is probably the most powerful thing you can share um, with a individual, a firm, a country, anything, because uh, knowledge and wisdom, you know, have brought us to where we are today. Um, so sharing knowledge, I think, is always the best first step so that these, uh, you know, um, individuals in these nations have an understanding of their, uh, of what the impact is of, you know, the direction in which we should all be headed. Um, and I do feel that, you know, we are in a very fortunate position in the developed world and we do have a duty to provide assistance um, and to help these other nations also build up um, and, you know, give their citizens better lives, which uh, is a part of ESG, right? It's about social and the best for people. A great example of that is, is education software. So that also knows no boundaries, right? And you can pull up uh, language learning software on your phone at, at almost zero cost. Learn a second language. In Canada, if you learn a second language, the academic studies would show that your economic opportunity increases 6 to 8%, something like that. But in Africa, if you learn English as a second language, your economic opportunity goes up 60 to 80%. An extraordinary jump in your economic opportunity. So there's great ways 
for you know solutions to be uh, delivered and through people's you know smartphones, whether you love them or hate them or both, like me, uh, you know, for solutions to be delivered that from the more developed world to developing countries that can make a huge impact. Absolutely, um, I you mentioned COP. I I do so. Uh, COP has their annual ESG conference every year, where they you know try to provide knowledge, but also you know set some goals uh, for for the future. So um, you know I'm curious, what are your thoughts, and do you feel that that conference has been impactful? Well, it gets attention, uh, so it keeps the conversation going, and the fact that it's annual keeps it fresh. Uh, there were high hopes for the last one, COP26 in Glasgow. Um, but the track record of the parties, the conference of the parties, the countries that bring their pledges and their ability to actually live up to those pledges is, is pretty pathetic. Nobody is living up to their pledges. And the Secretary General of the United Nations is becoming um, pretty direct in basically calling countries liars. They come with their pledges and they don't follow through on them. So even if, the difficulty is that even if, even if they did accomplish their pledges, they wouldn't be able to do what needs to be done. So we need to keep the temperature of the world um, globally uh, less than 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. If all of their pledges were satisfied, the ones they brought to Glasgow, it would only get us to 2.7 degrees centigrade. Um, so that's not good enough. So not only are the pledges not being met, even if they were met, they're not good enough. So the courage of, of countries to do what needs to be done um, is uh, not evident. In Europe, countries can get away with more leadership at the government level than we can in North America. Governments in North America are supposed to be small and out of the way. Um, so I think we need to engage the business community more proactively in this uh, and to have them bring their pledges to these efforts as well, because many of them are there, uh, and make darn sure that we are engaging public and private sector folks on doing what needs to be done and stop dancing around on this and make darn sure we understand short-term and long-term, long being 2050, short-term being 2030 uh, targets, and how the heck we're going to make those targets, not only in the industrialized world, but in the, the developing world as well. And we can't pull this off without business being engaged, and they're definitely not engaged. They don't even have targets. Don't even have targets. There was a survey done, uh, just uh, the results came out this week, of uh, lar large companies uh, and how many of them had targets? There's scope one, scope two, and scope three. And only 20% had scope one and two targets and only 10% had scope three targets. Those are large companies. SMEs, it's under 2%. Hmm. I mean, they're totally on the sidelines waiting for government to fix this. That's not acceptable. So we have to get them much more engaged and uh, we know how to do that, so we should just do it. So the, the COP, is, 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 it's, a, it's a good lightning rod for discussion, but man, the vested interests that are dominating the dialogue 
the fossil fuel sector and the influence that they have on what is finally decided is really quite scary. I mean, I knew they were good. I didn't realize they were that good um, on being able to um, control the message. So I, I, I don't know what the overall answer is, but I, I really think that that um, it's time that the COP pledges and actions between pledges, between COPs, uh, really picked up the pace. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. So we have governments coming with their pledges. Um, it sounds like they don't have a plan on how they're going to meet those pledges. And then the business community, which is a very large part of society, um, is not even a part of it. So, right. you know, that doesn't seem very sustainable to me. <laughs> no, we need to fix that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so like, I, th I think your point on having to involve business is definitely the right way to go because, uh, again, business, comp uh, it makes up a huge chunk of what actually happens. And obviously businesses have their own carbon uh, footprints to deal with as well. Um, so there, you know, it goes back to cooperation. Um, we can't really just expect the government to keep, you know, handing out fines or trying to create regulation to deal with it. There has to be, uh, you know, firms have to step up as well. The business world needs to step up and do their part. Um, and it sounds like they're not fully vested at this point. Right. So I, I'm riding a horse called uh, Net Zero Procurement. Uh, so take the Government of Canada as an example. They, they spend every year about $22 billion um, on goods and services. And net zero procurement would require them to get the most uh, climate-friendly goods and services from the companies that are most committed to net zero targets. From the companies that are most committed to net zero targets. In other words, what you do is you look at not only the, the goods and services, the products, but you also look at the attributes of the company, of the company. And the way you find out how committed they are to net zero targets is you have them do a questionnaire. And if they decide they would rather not do that questionnaire, that would give them a, a sense of how they're doing on their, their inventories of scope one, two, and three emissions, their targets, and their actions to reach those targets. Um, if they would rather not do that questionnaire, they don't get to be a supplier. So I think that the buying power of the governments can be used to engage businesses. And if they do fill out the questionnaire, then give preferential treatment to the companies that are further ahead than others and weight their answers at least 20% of the, the points associated with it uh, to make it clear that we are serious about this as a country. If you take that system and you ripple it from the federal government to the provincial government to the municipal governments, now you're into a $200 billion market force. So 22 or so billion at the, at the federal government level and 2200 million billion around Canada, that's a, that's a lot. And if we can get all governments on the planet doing this kind of thing, we will engage the business community. Because if we don't engage the business community, uh, we're not gonna make the targets. And I, th I think the business community or those who have made net zero pledges, uh, there's no way they're going to achieve those without looking through their supply chain, right? So they'll put pressure on, exactly. the, on their on their suppliers and and they'll tr and they'll try to understand their s scope two and three 
uh, footprints. And, you know, I, th I think this is, this is happening, but, you know, to Bob's point, it's not nearly quickly enough. Mm. Um, but, there, you know, mo most companies that I'm involved with uh, have made a pledge or are making a pledge. Uh, and certainly some of the largest investment funds in the world themselves have decided that they want to be net zero. However, they're going to measure that, uh, you know, we'll see. Um, but, you know, they've got a few years to figure it out. But uh, the pressure is going to be on those who have made commitments, um, who have large, large, large portfolios to put to work uh, to do their role as well. And investment managers who service those, whether they be, it's not just public funds, it's, it's private equity funds as well, are, are starting to do more work around their, their, either their activity to pledge or, or, uh, or at least understand. Mm. I think we are getting in our discussion on the wealth chat about ESG to a very interesting um, uh, perspective, I think, which is very important to understand also ESG. I think the, the whole rise of ESG has a lot to do with the belief that we can use market forces and uh, market incentives to achieve these ESG goals, right? And I would say that, um, you know, all of us here have spent a lot of time uh, in, you know, different worlds and different ways, but to think about that and make that happening. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, where we can figure this out, ratings, you know, getting good ones, good price signals, as it were, yeah, that these are, there's, there's stuff we can do. But, and that's where I agree with you, Bob, um, there's a limit. There have to be external incentives, and that comes back to COP, I think, which, uh, you know, I'm not a cynic about it because I think it legitimizes a discourse. And that has been not the case 15 years ago. You're right. Yeah, talking about sustainability, yeah. um, it, it was not on the agenda. So, yes, I see the, 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 the good things here, but I also see that we need more uh, concisive, governmental action here to yeah. set agendas i mean along the lines you describe if the government would set up a some regulations around their procurement these has ripple effects and then market forces can actually be used these these things are not mutually exclusive but there's one thing and i have a bit of hope uh, which we also have to really understand if we if we want to make sense of this debate is that in the last 40 years we have had policies and a political philosophy dominating most western certainly most western liberal democracies which was to say less government take the government out privatize government is a bad thing i mean often it's referred to as neoliberalism i don't like that word but we, we all get the idea but I think we all also recognize now, certainly with catastrophes from climate change, be it fires or water, you know, both ends, we need stronger, smarter government. We can't neglect the main player who sets the rule of the game. And we see some signs of this changing. 
unfortunately, we see it also in parts of the, again, the global perspective. We see a rise of authoritarian democracy. So that's a worrying dimension of it. So this is not all good. But if you think, for instance, of the reaction um, of Western governments to the uh, war in Ukraine, you know, where a lot of companies fell into place to pull out of Russia. Now, you can discuss this, but what it certainly shows is that governments are still there and strong. So this whole myth we have been raised, certainly I have been raised with in the last 13, 14 years, that governments uh, should be taken out of the economy and that uh, we need less rules and all these kind of things. We need smarter rules and we need smarter people in government along the lines, the example yeah, of lower procurement, taxes. Uh, lower <coughs> taxes, all this, this myth. Uh, we need we need smarter ways of doing this, and I think we see a resurgence, and I think also for a coming generation of practitioners, but also um, uh, students, uh, this is a new area to rethink what we want our governments to do for us. I was at a Clean Fifty uh, conference last week, and there was an award given to Halifax for the work that they were doing on climate change and circular economy, but mostly climate change. Halifax has been hammered by, by severe weather events. So Halifax increased their property taxes, which is heresy. I mean, nobody increases property tax. Halifax increased their property taxes by 4.5%, and three of that 4.5% was going to go towards helping Halifax get ready for more severe weather events and also get their act together on climate change. The initial reaction was outrage that the property taxes were going up. And then citizens all of a sudden started to show support. And in fact, they insisted that this tax go through. So the, the support for government leadership, government action on these things is very often determined by the timing of it and, and the location of the government. I mean, if you haven't personally experienced these kinds of severe weather events, you're probably not going to be as, as inclined to support moves that are going to help protect you against them. Um, but it was encouraging that when, when the stars align, you can accept in North America leadership from governments. In, in Europe, the culture is quite different and the leadership from government is much more accepted. In North America, small government is good, big government is bad. Um, it's 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 spiraling us into a hole that it's going to be very hard to get out of, and um, I think we have to legitimize good government. Humans have a great track record of doing the right thing when there's no <laughs> other alternative left. Yeah. Uh, mm. <laughs> so, uh, so hopefully we're not we're not heading all the way there. But it, but it is it is an interesting period of time that we're in 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 that our economies have been built more on the software side and that, that whole argument that software is eating the world. All of our fixed assets have been in place and our supply chains have globalized and you know our energy sources are secure until they're not. And then in the pandemic and, and with what's going on with the, with the war and, and the disruption in, in energy, and at the same time as we're trying to transition energy, what we've recognized is, is our, our hardware 
um, isn't set up for the future. And so to, to make those kinds of changes with governments and business leaders that are not used to that, but are used to optimizing something that's very much in place and has been working well is, is, a, is a challenge. So there's extra challenges that we have here to work through at a period of time where we're also trying to we're all also trying to do a, a right by right by uh, you know just managing our companies towards a better ESG kind of a, a future. So it's it's there's a lot out there right now, and and to and to be challenged with this as a as a business leader or as a community leader is difficult. But it's great to see examples like in Halifax. That's that's fantastic story. Yeah, that those are some very good points, um, and I want to unpack a few of them. Um, I do feel. Uh, Supply chains were brought up earlier. I think that's a really important area to look at. Um, but your uh, government example of you know raising taxes to help um, the the eastern provinces prepare better is a good example. And I think those citizens are more willing because unfortunately they have been victims of hurricanes, um, which is very sad. I I do want to go back. I, I do think about what Dirk said though about needing smarter governments. Uh, because governments, it, it's a bit tricky because, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, so there's a fair amount of inefficiencies that come with bureaucracies as well. While it's obviously very important to think, to think things through, uh, to take steps, to make sure that, you know, nothing is being missed. At the same time, it feels like it can take years to do an evaluation, let's say. Right. Well, outside there, there's wildfires, there's hurricanes. Um, and so how do you become faster, stronger, more agile, more efficient? And I think that's something that will be difficult, but something that definitely needs to be looked at for governments, um, because, you know, unfortunately, every person that you go to can have their criticisms of government. Right. Um, and there is a reason for that. And not all of them are unfair criticisms. Some of them are, but not all are. And so when we have an open mind and we take into consideration that there are genuine concerns, I think that helps us create a better framework and, to, and actually address those concerns. Um, it, it's really funny that, you know, if we're talking about Canada, uh, a headline for the past few weeks uh, that caught my attention that was interesting was, um, you know, during uh, the cabinet meetings, uh, one of the leader of the opposition said to, you know, um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that he was being a hypocrite because he keeps flying around on private jets. Um, and yet he's trying to lecture to people about um, being more green and climate change. And well, personally, I understand the need for world leaders to use jets because of security concerns. I do feel that there is also for criticism there because it does seem like they're not there haven't been steps, or at least not that I'm aware of, where they're trying to evaluate this and see if there is a better way for them to travel, right? Um, private jets have been in the headlines for the past couple of weeks because it's become a very contentious topic, but I think it is a fair criticism and it is something that we do need to acknowledge and accept so that we can create better frameworks and you know have more constructive conversations instead of just kind of dodging around some of these issues. Um, Bob, I know you, for instance, have a lot of conferences uh, that you're a part of, but you've taken on this, uh, doing things more in a virtual way instead of traveling. What are your thoughts? Yeah, 
it's a challenge to walk the talk, so to speak, on this. Um, and I've flown all over the world doing talks over the last few years. Um, India, China, New Zealand, Australia, Europe. Uh, and it's been fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's been great. You get to meet some amazing people and um, see places you otherwise wouldn't have. But I, I started to track my carbon emissions um, just for the heck of it um, a few years ago. And I noticed one year I kind of peaked out at about 25 metric tons associated with my driving, my flying, um, primarily those two things, a few other things as well, but mostly those two things. So I thought, what the heck? Uh, why don't I try, just for the heck of it, um, not flying for a year, just to see how that works out. So I changed my business model. And uh, that was pre-COVID. So the acceptance of conference organizers to have me talk virtually rather than being there in person uh, was a little bit problematic. They, they weren't that excited about it. But in the majority of cases, I was able to get them to agree to that. Um, if I was doing a, a talk for a college or a university course, that was pretty easy. They had the technology, so it wasn't a big deal. So um, I found that I didn't do quite as many talks, but uh, that didn't matter. Most of them are for free anyway. So then I thought, okay, um, maybe I'll stick with this and I'll also stop uh, driving a uh, internal combustion car. So I got a Leaf, an uh, uh, electric vehicle, Nissan Leaf, and um, did a couple of other things. And for the last three years, uh, my carbon footprint has been 0.1 metric tons as opposed to 25. And I think I can keep it that way. Um, and I've had three requests in the last month to go somewhere, and they're, God, they're, they're really good events, really good events, but um, not good enough to have me um, try to get there by plane. On the other hand, I'm starting to do some more detailed calculations as to what it would take to get there by bus, by train, by car, um, and I'm finding that if I traveled by myself in the car, as opposed to somebody else in the car with me, it's almost a per passenger kind of calculation. And my carbon footprint's gonna be higher if I drive there in my electric vehicle than if I drove by a bus or in some cases a plane. Um, there was a conference in Atlanta that I wanted to go to. Take me 16 hours to get there by train, um, 50 minutes to get there by plane. That's a lot of difference. Um, and if I drove an electric car, I'd have to stop and charge and all that stuff. So what I'm trying to help you understand is it's easy to make the decision, but man, it's not trivial. Um, you really have to decide that this is your new business model and that's who you are. Um, and that comes back to your purpose. And uh, most of my decisions are pretty determined by the purpose of sustainability advantage, which is <laughs> try to walk the talk on this stuff and clean up my own act first. So um, it's fun to give it a shot. I have the luxury of being able to do this um, in a way that works for me and works for the things I care about. But I fully understand that this is not typical. I, 
I use the feel good option of buying offsets when it's a quick click on the airline <laughs> reservation website, yeah. um, and it seems uh, uh, surprisingly cheap. It's five dollars and sixty cents for one I did yesterday from Boston to Montreal back to Boston. So I, I'm curious if you've uh, looked at that option. Yeah, offsets are a little problematic in a lot of cases. That's what I figured. Yeah. Um, regardless of whether they're tr planting trees or whether they're technology. Um, so I, I use Bullfrog Power for electricity as well as natural gas as well. So I charge my car with renewable electricity. Um, but I, I realized offset, I used offsets for quite a number of years and then I, I, I just kept I kept digging to try to understand exactly how these things were offsetting my carbon footprint and I became more and more uneasy about what they were doing and how they were doing it and who was looking after the trees after they were planted and, and how long would it take for them to absorb the carbon that I had emitted. Um, so you end up with more questions than answers very often with, with offsets. There are gold standard offsets. I used them for a few years, uh, but uh, no, I'm not using any offsets. Right. I find with offsets, tracking is very important. Um, you know, um, so at CGI, for instance, we've uh, have pledged uh, to uh, net zero, uh, something that made me very happy. Um, like I I'm very passionate about the environment. Um, sustainability is extremely important to me, which is how I got into the ESG field was what can be done, what's happening, how do we make the world a better place. Um, so I was very excited when CGI announced that they were going net zero. Um, and I know that in our firm, like we have, um, we are, we're a technology and consulting firm, so we have data centers um, and they consume a fair bit of power. So we've been switching over to renewables. Um, as one of the things that we're doing. Um, I'm also part of a sustainability committee that we have. So in fact, actually this upcoming uh, weekend, we're gonna be planting trees, uh, which I'm looking forward to, but there are like little small things that can be done, uh, which I find are better than offsets. I'm not saying all offsets are bad because I just don't know, but with offsets, I feel like it's a black box and I have no visibility into it. And again, I, I I prefer to do things where I can see the impact and I, I know something is actually yeah, good for happening. You. Good for you. Yes. Um, it's a journey. It, it's, it is for all of us. Um, but good for you for giving it a shot. Yes. That's great. Well, we're definitely trying. We're trying to be as green as we can be. Good. That's for sure. Um, now, the other part of this, of course, uh, and we've kind of touched on it throughout the conversation, is technology. So, you know, the conversation always, always comes back to technology is going to save us. Uh, so I'm curious, <laughs> what technology is out there that's going to save us? Well, cer certainly, you know, when it comes to clean energy, it's dependent on technology. Whether it's wind or whether it's geothermal or, or um, you can debate nuclear or water, um, you know, the... the cost of producing electricity has followed the traditional path of technology uh, innovation, which is that you really get a, a dramatic, once the units go up and you get to version two and three and four and, and technology improves, you get a dramatic reduction in the cost of producing electricity to the point where it's competitive today with 
with more uh, traditional fossil fuel. Um, so technology has an incredible role to play, I think. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's still challenging, though. Um, when you look at, for example, wind turbines right now in, in Europe, you know, they are going to be flat this year, I think, in units over last year, even though the demand is going up, supply chain shortages hmm. are, are, are challenging companies uh, in that space to deliver uh, at costs that were, you know, contracted for two, three years ago to deliver, you know, in today's dollars, uh, what might be a wind turbine at a loss instead of at profit because, uh, because of the increase in raw material costs. So there's a lot of cross currents and a lot of puts and takes when it comes to technology and its effectiveness today. But if you look at the longer sort of span of improvements over time, you can absolutely see, you know, see the improvements. And it's not just in clean tech. I mentioned, you know, educational software is another example uh, in the social space. Um, so we are going to need technology, but certainly it's not a panacea. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know. It's not a rifle shot solution to to our issues. We have to have everybody play a role. Yeah. Well, when Bob mentioned his green car, I was uh, one of the concepts that I think is very fascinating. That uh, I believe Tesla has been playing around with is just having solar panels on your car, so your batteries uh, charging while you're driving. Um, I think that's very cool and really good technology that'll help. And, um, you know, perhaps you won't have to stop to recharge. Your battery will just, you know, run on your solar panels as you drive. Yeah, and in Vermont, they use uh, the, the electric utility uses cars as storage. So you plug your ca car into Reverse. the grid yeah. to charge your car, but you can also use your car's uh, stored electricity to feed the grid back to the utility when the utility needs electricity so they don't have to build itself a bit of a crowdsourcing to electricity storage so there's a lot there's a lot of interesting technology out there already so technology is a large part of the of the solutions to all of this um, but our dependence on it makes uh, chip shortages really really a, a big deal uh, you start to run out of chips and you run out of a lot of the things that we take for granted and then you have problems with the power that's going to drive the technology um, and you start to realize your dependence on technology is not necessarily all good. So we need it, but we need to be careful that we don't get ourselves into a, another set of dependencies that start to backfire on us. Uh, there's a lot of talk about AI and, and blockchain and all of those kinds of things to try to help us to get our heads around better data to, to address some of these issues. But... Um, so far, that's a bit of a dream more than a reality. Yeah, I think Bob and Eric have made this uh, point very uh, astutely that there is a huge potential in technology, especially if we talk about environmental uh, improvements, uh, climate change, um, waste management. Uh, I think where technology can help and where new technologies already have improved things. But um, since we are talking about this systemic level now here towards the end of our chat, um, I don't think it will be a technocratic fix. And I, I think it can go uh, in both directions, in, in, in two directions. I think we need a, 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 a rethink about 
government and governance and setting new rules for the game for all the players, right? And I think that's a trend we haven't quite discussed, but it's very also important to see in the ESG field that in many areas uh, what industry is trying to achieve, business sectors, to create rules for the game for every player because then you get change and then everybody does the same thing. But there's a second aspect. So this, this would be the, the upward aspect uh, or, or, you know, bottom-up aspect, if, if you like. But there's also a top-down aspect, and that's, um, Eric, you mentioned with technology and the way uh, new technologies, especially IT technologies, empower people at the bottom. Yeah, access to information, access to education. You know, I, the game I am in is changing under our feet and the pandemic has just pulled the rug a little bit and we are just realizing that maybe what we think education is at a university isn't what it really is for most of the nine billion people on the planet, right? And so this this will be great and exciting. And I think uh, we will see a lot of change with empowerment at the bottom. And I think technology, yes, is a game changer. We see that already. And there's, I think, hope that technology will do this. But uh, I don't think it will be a technocratic fi fix. It's about rules and about the way we agree to uh, deal with each other as humans. And that's where it all comes down at the end of the day. Behavior I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you brought up some very good points, Dirk, and we are going to need a whole episode to <laughs> dig into some of those topics. Um, we do need to wrap up, but there were a few things that were mentioned, and one thing that I really wanted to quickly touch on, and that is, greenwashing because we we spoke a bit about um bob you brought up blockchain um, and that's one of the ways that you can actually you know track impact that companies are having um so just uh, thoughts on there's been a lot of greenwashing we've of course seen the uh, sec get involved because of this um what are your thoughts uh, on this and like how do we fix this problem because it's it's come to light a lot more in recent times yeah, uh, there are NGOs and social media that are pretty good at calling out companies on, on greenwashing. And uh, I think the level of sophistication of uh, people's understanding of the issues is a little bit better than it used to be. So uh, they can smell this stuff better than they used to be able to. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that uh, we shouldn't underestimate the creativity of organizations on continuing to make claims that um, if you read them really, really carefully are not exaggerated, but if you don't read them really carefully, it sounds fantastic. Uh, so um, I still think we need to keep our eyes open and practice critical thinking, which seems to be a rare commodity these days. Uh, when we hear claims of, of uh, organizations doing amazing things, really caring about things that they don't give a hoot about, and uh, peddling misinformation that gets in the way of good decisions. So I, I think we still have to be very, very vigilant about that. Yeah, I mean, the second order effect is that it gives the whole movement a bad name, right? So um, 
you see egregious examples and people with an anti-ESG agenda just use those to attack the entire movement towards, towards a more responsible and sustainable ownership and, and management. So I think that to me, you're always going to have people who misbehave and companies that participate in greenwashing. The real sad part is that you know it, it puts the whole it, it puts the whole movement at uh, under scrutiny when it when, when there's a lot of people doing really authentic, really great work as well. That is very true. Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation. I've learned a lot. Thank you for being here and for chatting with me. It was fun. Thank, Thank you. you. It's great. Perfect. Now, for a bit of housekeeping, I would like to remind everyone that Wealth Chat is currently a monthly episode. Uh, episodes will drop towards the end of each month, and we will have clips in the interim for you guys. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it, and also please like and subscribe. Thank you. Matt, I just had a very interesting conversation uh, with Bob, Dirk, and Eric. I found it to be very insightful. You uh, were here as well, and you got to view the conversation. So I would love to get your take on it. But first, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Matthew Arist, and I'm the uh, Director of uh, Sustainability and ESG at CGI. And it's my responsibility to build out that practice and uh, create the thought knowledge around that practice and help our clients out. Uh, I started uh, my career in capital markets, and I worked in capital markets for 20 years doing a debt origination syndication, structured trading, and then working on sort of large regulatory and risk projects. Um, and around 2018, I kind of got interested in sustainability because it kind of scratched me where I itched. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an environmentalist myself, and I like the outdoors. So I studied uh, sustainability and ESG at uh, Harvard, Oxford, uh, Wharton, they called Polytechnique. And uh, so that's sort of where I got my education, and I've kind of been quoted in, in a few media publications, including uh, Financial Times on sustainability and ESG. Oh, that is very impressive. Congratulations on uh, the publications. I, I would like your thoughts on the conversation that I just had with our panelists. Um, what stood out to you the most from that discussion? Yeah, so I think you put together a, a, an amazing panel. I think it's very interesting. A lot of fascinating things they said there. You know, if we cover ESG and sustainability, the conversation could be go on for days. I'm for especially with those guys, especially people who know a bit about the subject. You could talk about the E, or the S, or the G alone, and you could go on for probably an hour. Um, yeah, I mean, so there were a number of themes I think that were talked about. Uh, so we, we talked about, uh, or they talked about uh, ESG and sustainability, the differences. They talked about um, sort of solutions. They talked about ESG scoring. They talked about disparity, so developed world versus developing world, and sort of how do we get to this sort of framework for everybody. They talked about governance, and they talked about what people and companies can do, and then they talked about what governments should do and how they can help out and what role they play. Right. Um, was there anything in particular that stood out to you in that conversation? Yeah, there are a lot. There are a lot of things. A lot of interesting points were made on those very themes that I, I sort of brought up. I mean, I think one interesting thing. I'm a bit of a proponent of of sustainability, so that's what I believe. It it kind of is, and I think that ESG is actually a subset of sustainability because sustainability would include everything. So that would be include your financials. It would include everything you're doing to address ESG factors. So those issues, 
and sustainability ultimately is you know the sustainability of the company within its environment right so i thought that conversation was a, a little interesting um i think definitely the conversation around uh ESG scoring was an interesting conversation. And I mean, I could go on all afternoon about ESG scoring, but um, it's very interesting because I do believe one of the most important points that was made is that it is an immature science. So it is a data science and it is an immature data science. The data itself is immature, right? The data sets, the, the sources that we're getting the data from, right? No, no one's really had to compile all this data before and sort of take a look at it. The data, itself is very different from each other. You're going to compare like, you know, disparity uh, among certain racial groups and sort of try to metric that. And then also in the same data set, you have, you know, your CO2E for your, your scopes one, two, and three. So it's putting together very, you know, not incongruous data. Um, and I think also if you look at the scoring itself, right, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So if I was to ask, you know, I think probably 15 analysts on uh, Bay Street covered TD Bank. They don't all agree that everyone should buy TD Bank at every at a given time, right? Some guys are like hold, some guys are like buy, and some guys are like sell. Okay, sorry, cut. You cannot say TD Bank. We oh, talked sorry, about shit. this. Okay, right. so we're gonna continue on, but just stop mentioning TD Bank. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'll redo that. Um, so if you were to pull a bunch of analysts on the street with regards to an ESG rating, say on some big bank, um, some of them, you know, there's probably 15 analysts that cover the big banks in, in Toronto. And uh, I would say probably, you know, a third of them might say buy that, that particular company. A third of them may say sell that particular company. And a, C, and a third of them may say hold that particular company. So there's a difference of opinion. And that's why we sort of had like in your Tesla example, you know, some companies rating Tesla very highly, some companies rating Tesla very low. And then you, you as an investor, what are you to think of that? And what are you to make of it? Yeah, sure, it's very confusing, right? But there, there is, it's not just the data, it's also just people establishing a certain point of view, right? I agree with that. And ESG, again, is a very broad uh, topic uh, that you can have conversations with about, you know, for years, because there, there's, uh, it is still very new, and there are different factions who are fighting for different things and different point of views, different stakeholders. Um, one of the things that has made me hopeful is the ESG practice at CGI that you are leading, uh, because I've gotten to see that there is a genuine desire um, and push to have actionable results. Right. It's not just about doing an assessment for a firm and then giving them a stack of papers and saying, all right, that's what you do. We're actually really trying to give them actionable insights um, and help them on their journey to becoming uh, better compliant with ESG uh, regulations and also just having meaningful impact on our, the surroundings and, and our world. So from that side, you know, can you speak a bit about uh, CGI's practice and what you're hoping for and the mission with that practice? Yeah, so we kind of, uh, so at a very high level, um, what we're hoping for is we want to help our clients. We want to help our clients achieve their sustainability goals. We want to help them establish a strategy that's cohesive and comprehensive and that they can really execute on and understand what they're doing and that uh, uh, 
a plan that they can actually integrate into their operations. So we want operationalization because that's where you'll really achieve and understand and realize the benefits of doing sustainability in ESG. And so we kind of look at uh, our clients in different ways. So we have clients who are involved in the investment industry. So they have specific needs with regards to ESG and sustainability. We have clients that are involved in helping clients issue products like banks, right? So they have certain ESG needs. And then we have clients who are involved in industry, right? Manufacturing, extractive industries, um, IT, for example. And so they have specific needs as well. And our role really is to help them through our thought leadership and through our methodology um, to, to address the ESG challenges that they have. And there's a number of challenges they have, right? They have challenges with regards to things you already talked about with the panel, like CO2E, so, so emissions, water usage, plastic, right? Um, they have challenges with regards to ESG reporting, which is soon to become mandatory, right? Um, they have challenges with regards to data, all this data that they have that they have to pull from many different systems, how they integrate it and how they utilize it in a very um, uh, efficient manner is another problem for companies. It's an enormous amount of data, right? And the collection and metricing of this data, they've really never done before. They're used to reporting on their balance sheet. They're not used to reporting on their CO2E. So this is sort of our role is to help them achieve all the different tasks that are involved in helping them accomplish uh, sustainability in ESG. It's a big task, but it's an important one. Yeah. And uh, I'm very glad that we've taken up on it and that, you know, we're willing to kind of do have the difficult conversations because not all these conversations are comfortable because, you know, especially with larger firms, they become very comfortable in their way of doing things. And so to make uh, changes can be difficult. But I have seen, you know, some of the folks at CGI having these conversations. I've seen some of the work that the ESG practice is now doing. Uh, to really want show the benefit of the change and to, to help make that change. And I think it's that actionable part that's really important because it's one thing to get information uh, from, let's say, a consulting firm. It's another thing to have that consulting firm there with you, helping you make those changes. Um, and that's extremely vital to firms because they, especially with this new arena, as it's been mentioned plenty of times today, this is still a very... Uh, new field. This is a new science, and everyone is trying to figure their uh, their way within this industry and how best they can participate. Um, and I think that you know, firms have made mistakes. There will be some firms that make mistakes in the future, but the important thing is that those mistakes are rectified, and that everyone learns from those mistakes and they're not made again. Um, and whenever there's a new thing, there's always mistakes, and it's and it's to be expected. Uh, but that's one of the things that, uh, you know, your practice does is where you learn from them, you learn from the mistakes of others, and you help firms get on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like, I want to go back to the, um, the difficult conversation piece in a second. But um, what I want to talk about really, so we look at it from, uh, with the lens of basically maturity, materiality, verity, and veracity. So what do these words mean? So materiality, Bob talked about it very early in the panel with regards to single materiality and double materiality. So you hear about this in ESG. And 
what does this mean? So materiality is the actual significance of certain risks for your company or that your company poses to the environment. So single materiality is what um, risks that have an impact on your company, right? So it's like stakeholders, it's like the environment. Double materiality is actually the risks that you pose as a company to those stakeholders and to the environment, right? Then when we look at maturity, we look at where is the company on its journey? So are they, and a lot of companies are really stuck in the very beginning because ESG is so big. They're like, well, what do I do? Do I address the S? Do I address the E? Everyone seems to you know, be so concerned about climate. Maybe I should just focus on the climate piece. Uh, or, or, and then what's this thing G, you know, <laughs> which most companies should know a lot about, but you'd be surprised. Um, and then there's verity, which is the truth. What, you know, how truthful are they being and how true are they to their actual purpose, right? And then there's veracity. How aggressively are they pursuing that particular um, purpose, right? And from there, we sort of apply, or beneath that, we sort of apply a, a sort of a 5R framework, which is regulatory risks. Um, I'm going to probably forget it now. Uh, Rossi, uh, reputation, and readiness, okay? And we apply that to every company, and we look at what they're doing with respect to those five R's, right? Because it has a very big impact on those E, S, and G factors. Well, can you break down the five R's a bit more? Like, what actually are there and how are they measured? What's their impact? Yeah, so regulatory would be, are you living up to the regulatory expectations? Are you ready for new regulation coming in? What kind of framework do you have or structure do you have to address regulatory issues. So as I said, like ESG reporting is going to be mandatory 2024. And it was mentioned by, uh, I think it was mentioned by Eric, um, by the SEC and the CSA, which are the securities administrators for Canada and the US. So are companies ready for that reporting, right? What kind of infrastructure do they have in place? What kind of, you know, are they going to be able to transparently report on that in a robust and accurate way? Um, then we look at reputation. So what kind of risks, what are you doing currently in your current state that's creating more reputational risk for your company, right? Are you addressing any risks out there reputation-wise that should be addressed? Companies these days are leaving a lot of risk just out on the table and not addressing it and hoping it won't you know, make a difference. And then suddenly they have an acute event and they have to react to it. And as we've seen, oftentimes they react very poorly, right? They don't own the mistake or they don't, or they never, they cover up the records because they don't want anything found in discovery. We all know the famous Ford Pinto case, right? Where they had talked, you know, a lot about, let's go back, edit that part. Sorry, I, I said Ford. That, that's fine. Okay. All right. Um, so companies need to uh, better address these risks that they're leaving on the table. Then we look at um, the readiness. So where is the company in its journey? Are they ready to do more or are they only able to do so much? And the thing is right now with a lot of companies aren't doing enough. So a little bit of progress is better than no progress at all. Um, then we look at Rossi, which is a return on sustainable investment. And that was a metric developed by uh, the New York Stern School of Business. And really, this is where the rubber meets the road because companies really want to know if I invest X, right? What am I going to get back for X, right? So, and a lot of this is qualitative. 
it can't necessarily be immediately matched. But you can explain to them that you're creating these kind of opportunities. And did you realize, did you think about that before, right? And you're creating the opportunity to innovate. You're creating opportunities to optimize and realize efficiencies, right? So these would all go into the Rossi that companies need to um, sort of be informed about. Because when they make decisions, really companies like to make decisions about, you know, I do this, what does it cost, like, what does it cost in X, or what will it deliver to me in, in X, right? And X is usually a dollar sign. Right. That, that makes sense. And these five R's, uh, the sustainability practice that you're leading is able to help firms define and create plans to meet them? That's correct. Yeah, we create like a roadmap. Um, and we look at them. What are they doing around these things? And we say, these five things are really the five things that you can most address and most handle at the moment. And so we really think you should be, you know, you should dig into them. Um, the other thing I wanted to, so with, with regards to the five R's, one thing I wanted to talk to you about or go back and visit was the hard conversation piece and the frank conversation. So we had a, a conversation with the bank earlier this year, and they had said they were going to reduce their, car, um, their expenditures and their financing of oil sands, and they said they would uh, no longer finance uh, Arctic exploration. And we found, and they said this in a, an investor presentation, and we found a document produced by like 300 NGOs, some significant, I won't name them, but, um, and uh, it showed actually data to the contrary. They'd only increased their uh, involvement in the oil sands. So I, I took this to the CEO and I said like, look, um, I'm coming from a place of love here. <laughs> I'm saying, why would you put yourself out there and say you're not going to do something when you ended up doing it? You should have probably better communicated and better consolidated your, you know, your operations and had them talking to each other to really agree upon what could realistically be stated and what realistically could be achieved. Um, because you've done to the contrary, and a lot of stakeholders will not be happy about this. And he kind of said, to me, uh, he was quite a thoughtful man, the CEO, and he, he was at first a little defensive, but then he was like, yeah, you know what? This is not very good, and we really, really do have to do better. And ESG really, at its heart, is, is mostly about what are you saying and what are you doing? And most companies right now are saying 80% of ESG and doing 20% of ESG. And we really want to move the dial so that they're doing, you know, really like what some of the most sustainable companies, and we mentioned corporate nights in their list, and most of these companies are really doing 80% ESG and talking 20% ESG. And what you will find with that magic formula is that if you're doing 80% ESG, people will notice you. They'll notice your actions, because actions speak louder than words, and they'll actually create media around you to say, oh, look what this company's doing. And oh, aren't they sort of an example of what should be done? And so you don't have to talk as much. Yeah. And, you know, in your example, I think that was an important example because, <clears throat> excuse me, it goes to show that people do have good intentions, right? They, they do want to set out to be on this course of becoming very ESG friendly. They want to make a change. But it there are certain policies that have been around for a while now. You know, if you take um, 
banks and their lending, for instance, like they've been doing that for as long as they've been in existence and they've lent to everyone. Um, and as it was mentioned in the previous conversation that I had with um, our panel, you know, we've, we've used these sources and so obviously they were viable for us at that time. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that all these firms are also transitioning. So it, it's good that they realize their mistake and they're doing it, right? And I think for you to have those types of conversations where you're bringing it to their attention is, is really important because now they realize it. Because um, obviously everyone wants to go out there, they want to say the right things. And you know, you can argue that they ultimately also want to do the right things. Uh, but it can be difficult because sometimes you have contracts in place, there's you know, uh, like a whole lot of things that are in the background that we're not privy to. So for them to you know, say we are going to, for instance, cut out funding, um, I'm, it's very possible they have that full on intention, but it's just that they also have contractual obligations to meet. So for, uh, you know, that is a plan that needs to be set in action and then they need to move towards it. Um, but if we talk about funding, something that I think is also really important, and I wanted to speak about it with the panel, but unfortunately we didn't have the time today, um, is transitional funding, right? Like transitional funding is big and you can't just, you know, say that a firm is not ESG positive so we just cut out all funding to them. They want to be, if they, if they genuinely want to become positive, there are avenues for them to do that and that is transition bonds, which are very big in Europe and Europe is known to be very green because they've had these types of facilities set up to help their firms and I think it's something that we need more of in North America um, because we do have these corporations who want to move in a more ESG friendly direction, but they do need an avenue to get there. And so transitional uh, bonds are really important. I think they will play a big part in our future uh, to help these firms um, live up to the words that they're saying, you know, do the actions, not just the talking. Yeah, so I think you, there's a lot to unpack there. I think, so you've, you've raised uh, the whole conversation around divestiture versus sort of hold and advocate. You've uh, talked about, um, you know, market forces and you've talked about, you know, uh, vehicles to actually um, catalyze change, right? So uh, if you're talking about like, you know, divestiture versus, um, you know, hold or underweight or threat to underweight, and advocate, that's a big conversation around that. So a lot of vest investment firms um, are saying they're gonna totally divest in this industry because it's dirty or they just, you know, that's an, so that's an exclusionary or they used to call that negative screening, right? And so there's an argument for that. I don't think that really helps. Uh, what I think it helps is, is to have some teeth in the game. So that would be to maintain your position, right? Or maintain weighting, but threat to underweight and then advocate, push the company to improve, push the company to make a bit of progress. And then you, you brought up uh, the subject of sort of market forces. So like banks, right? Banks sort of have a lot of in influence because they are the gatekeepers of the money and the money is really the grease of the whole economy. It makes things work, it makes things happen, right? So the banks really play a key role and this role is the whole role of sustainable financing, right? And that's the other point you brought up with regards to transition bonds. Transition bonds is like one vehicle or one mechanism within the sustainable finance sort of tool set, right? There's sustainability loans, 
Uh, there's sustainability bonds. There's green bonds, right? And all these vehicles are a form of financing where the banks can actually work with the company. So how they how they actually work is there's like sort of key performance indicators that are that are ESG related built into the bond. And in order to meet those sort of and then they establish targets in order to sort of get the money, it's contingent upon environmental or ESG performance, right? It, depending on if it's a social bond or, or if it's a, a pure ESG bond or is focused on governance, right? And so in order to get the money and then to get the money again, they have to show that they're going to perform. And they actually get the money at a slight discount to market, right? In order to, you know, sort of encourage people to issue in this way. And I think it's an amazing vehicle. Um, and it has been used well, and then it has been used not well. Um, and there's been some, you know, conversation around greenwashing, unfortunately. And that's when I think right at the end of the conversation of the panel, I, I forget who brought it up, but the creativity of, <laughs> of, of the financial industry or the creativity of companies to sort of, I think it was Bob probably, um, to sort of find ways of doing what's asked, but going around the rules are sort of bending the rules to be more preferential or more advantageous towards what they want to achieve, maybe not exactly the objectives of ESG. So, right. um, no, that, that's a good point. Um, and I think, again, it does all go back to this being a very young field still. Yeah. Um, and as there's more exposure to things like uh, transition bonds yeah. in this market, it will get better. Uh, people will learn to read it. I mean, ESG has been around for you know, well over a decade now. And right now we're finally tackling the issue of greenwashing. So it, things just need time and exposure uh, to make them more effective and, and you know, ultimately serve the true purpose that they're meant to serve. Because you will always have those individuals who want to play around the rules, who um, you know, uh, may not have the best intentions. But I like to believe that for the most part, People usually do have good intentions, yeah. um, and it's just a way, they just need a way to figure out how best to do things. Um, now, we, uh, we do need to wrap up here, but I wanted to give the final word to you on, you know, CGI's mission yeah. within this space and what we're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, so what we're hoping to accomplish is, is to develop this advisory and consulting business, help our clients really both transition and really drive their, their ESG purpose and integrate it fully into their operations. We also have a, a solutions oriented because as you know, you know, CGI develops a lot of IP. So we have some fantastic IP solutions like, you know, we have satellites that can, you know, uh, uh, predict wildfires. Um, we have, uh, and, and they're currently involved in a big project in the UK for uh, seagrass, which is one of the biggest carbon sinks in the world with smart metering so you know internet of things salute type solutions um and we have sort of more advisory type solutions like we have our sort of uh, maturity assessment and uh, many other offerings on on the advisory side that we are going to you know bring to clients in a best practice manner in order to help them uh, achieve their goals perfect well thank you for having this conversation with me matt I've learned a lot and 
I think it's important for the market to know that CGI is very dedicated to ESG. Uh, this is a field that you know we're putting a fair bit of resources into because we genuinely want to make a change, and we're always here to help clients. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Of course.